Hi, and welcome to Sense in the City Athens, a podcast presented by Alexia Amvrazi. This podcast is created to introduce you to a multitude of places, people, and things in the Greek capital, Athena, named after the goddess of wisdom, to lead you to discover the city through your senses in fresh, evocative, and even downright surprising ways. In this episode, I interviewed Donald Robertson, who's a world-renowned expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy, particularly cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT, and classical Greek and Roman philosophy, which is a pretty unique mix. It all started out for him when, after years of working as a CBT therapist and teaching worldwide, Uh, running workshops and seminars and having also written six books and numerous articles, he uh, started to combine more actively his uh, studies of philosophy with uh, Stoic uh, thought by joining the Stoic Week. You can find out much more about it in the interview and in the show notes that follow. Now, Donald and I met at uh, sunset time on the lush and deeply historic Pnyx Hill near the Acropolis and during our chat we explored Athens through the sights, sounds, smells, textures and experiences that we had there and then, as well as delving into his personal rapport with this city, a city he's been discovering more and more deeply since he first visited it three years ago when I first met him. I have to note here that I first met him uh, for an interview that was going to last for about 45 minutes, so we had a one-hour slot, and we ended up spending four and a half hours chatting because he's such a treasure trove of information, and everything that comes out of his mouth is, uh, if not highly entertaining, deeply fascinating and educational. We time-traveled to the ancient past and experienced the senses related to Stoicism and life thousands of years ago. We find out what Stoicism smells like. We find out what Socrates thinks of the Internet or would have definitely thought of the Internet. We also find out from Donald some very valuable tips based on both his knowledge of psychotherapy and uh, Stoicism on how people today can deal with everyday life, with the traumas of things like COVID-19 pandemics and um, other situations that we find uh, asphyxiate us with anxiety uh, on an everyday level. Now, you can find, as I said, all this information in more depth in our show notes. But uh, for now, let's move on to my meeting with Donald. So I'm just walking up the cobblestone part of uh, the path that leads off the Onisiaro Payitu street and uh, you just it's a basically a cobblestone path with lined with olive trees and pine trees it's really beautiful as soon as you step in here you're uh, entering a different vibe completely and I'm going to walk up to the legendary Socrates prison well that's what it's called um, but uh, real archaeologists, real experts in ancient Greece say that it's 
not at all Socrates' prison. It's not where Socrates went to die um, and to drink the poison. Uh, I'm going to go and meet Donald Robertson over there now. He should be, ah, yes, I spot him now. I'm walking on this uh, dirt road, which is really dry from the summer sun and uh, full of rocks and pine cones and there's trees all around me. I hear the cicadas and uh, I see Donald standing outside this, uh, this amazing spot which is like a sort of cave uh, with, uh, with bars and it's got two holes, two doors, sort of two doorways and all these uh, metal bars and uh, here he is and I'm going to ask him after I say hello, of course, the important question. Hello, Donald. Hi, Alexia. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. I hope I'm not too late. No, i just on time. Uh, we're here at the fake Socrates <laughs> I didn't even get to ask my question because yeah. I was going to ask you, is there any truth to the fact that the, the, the concept that this was Socrates' prison? I don't think so. I think there's no... Well, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence that this was the prison where Socrates is put. There's a kind of tradition that it was referred to as the prison of Socrates, but I think the latest belief is that Socrates was actually imprisoned in a prison house in the Agora, um, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. But that's just because it was an old building and it looks kind of creepy or whatever. <laughs> like At some point, people had decided over the years that they thought that's what it might have been. I know one thing they did use this for much, much later on in history, in more recent years, mm -hmm. during the Second World War, apparently it was used to house uh, the treasures of the archaeological museum during the Nazi occupation, and there was a big concrete wall covering it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I still don't know, you know, what happened here thousands of years ago. Well, who knows? I mean, if it was maybe some kind of dwelling place, or a shop, or something. I like to f imagine that something special and magnificent happened here. Maybe there was an oracle housed here, or maybe somebody was just selling uh, hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient hot dogs. We'll, we'll never really know. There's not, there's not a lot of evidence here. All we know is there's some kind of caves, and I think there's a cistern, and there's bars in front of it now. But it's mm -hmm. a very interesting, kind of slightly spooky looking um, ruin. How would you describe the whole place around here? I mean, it's, it's, it is a special place, isn't it? Do you, do you feel anything, uh, especially knowing that we're going towards Pnix Hill, which actually we could set off right oh, now. In that direction. Yeah, and, uh, and very... it's considered the, the place where democracy, the process of democracy began, although it was a sexist process, of course, because no women were allowed because yeah. they weren't citizens. But anyway, let's overlook that. <laughs> so how do you feel being here in this, this part of Athens? Well, I think it's a very historic location and it's a very scenic location. It's got uh, many views of the Acropolis um, from different points in this little range of hills. And uh, it's important to the history of Athenian politics, as you mentioned. We're near the Philippapis Monument as well, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, I guess, what would you say, a very eye-catching monument. You can see it from all over the place because it's right at the top um, of one of the highest points. Mm -hmm. You can see from the, the city centre. And uh, it smells quite fragrant here as well. And we have this lovely sound of the crickets. Like, it smells of dry leaves and dry earth. And there are animals kind of here. 
tortoises. Yes. Turtles, uh, colonas. Yeah, colonas, that's right. And they, uh, they hunt in packs at night, so you have to be very careful, <laughs> they'll get you. I'm told. They're, quite fa they're faster than they look. So, Donald, tell me a little bit about your connection to Athens, because you first came here for the very first time in your life, although you, your work centers around Stoicism um, three years ago, that's right? Yeah, I think it was around about three years ago. And, and you're very connected to it already. Yeah. Like what I, is it about Athens that makes you, that evokes you to come back again? Well, I again? love Greek philosophy. And I benefited a lot from studying Greek philosophy over the years. And so I wanted to come to Athens and learn more about the culture and the history. And so I came and it seemed very familiar to me. Like I think to many people throughout the centuries, um, starting with the Romans, you know, perhaps, like people learned about Greek philosophy and culture, they're influenced by it. Maybe didn't get a chance to come here, then eventually came here, and they had this kind of deja vu feeling mm. that uh, they're finally getting to experience things that they'd previously only read about in books and poems. So, what are the senses of Athens that uh, that you sort of well, the senses that you associate with Athens the most? The senses, I, I, the taste of Greek food, <laughs> many tastes of Greek food. <laughs> of all sorts and crassy. Is it this way? And uh, yes, I think so. Go this way, I think so. We're going through a little gate now, and there's a big dog, but yeah. he's without a friendly one. <laughs> he looks friendly, yes, like most of the strays of Athens. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> I think uh, well, the this is smells of Athens as well. Um, there's uh, the smell of the, the different plants that grow in the hillsides and the, the sensation of the sun as well. Recently it's been quite scorching. Mm. Um, and so these are some of the things that I associate. What about textures? Is there, are there any textures that you Yes, would... there are. Yes, I'd like to complain about that, Alexia. Because some of these paving stones are quite slippy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was actually scared my sandals would smooth. be slippery too. Yeah, sometimes in the hill, the hills are very steep. And sometimes I wonder how these old ladies, the yayas, don't slide down them. Like, because they have to walk up these steep hills with their shopping bags <laughs> from the supermarket from Alpha Vita. And uh, there's not a lot of grip on some of the paving slabs. So, so we are walking up the paving slabs now and we chose this specific hour for a reason because it's almost sunset time. Uh, the sun sets uh, in about half an hour, 20 minutes and it's a full moon tonight. And uh, why are we here? What can you see right now? Wow. Well, suddenly we round the corner. It's often the case in Athens that you just go round the corner <laughs> or you suddenly see a gap between some streets and you catch a glimpse of something historic. And we can see many things because there are many things very close together in Athens. So we see the uh, Areopagus with um, a lot of people uh, clambering on it. And we see the uh, Acropolis. My God, there's a lot of people on there, actually. Yeah, I, yeah, there's an awful lot of people on there. And I, I think they often have like little music performances up there. Oh, is that what it is? Well, sometimes people Something's bring out guitar or yeah, little gatherings. And, and we, see Lucavetus. Right behind it, yes. Uh-huh. And uh, we're feeling the cool breeze because we're on top of uh, one of the hills. You haven't mentioned this huge, uh, hugely impressive uh, rock on my right, on our right hand side. The Acropolis? Yes! Oh, I did. you didn't hear me. I did I mention the Acropolis, I promise you. Okay. You can't miss it. Right. So, Temple to Athena, 
and uh, yeah, like one of my interests is Stoic philosophy, and I recently noticed that one of my favourite philosophers is Marcus Aurelius, and the Stoics have this idea about viewing things from high above as mm-hmm. a kind of contemplative practice. And Marcus Aurelius says that the mind of someone who does this um, rises above violent passions, he says, and becomes like an impenetrable citadel. And I thought, Marcus Aurelius, although he's Roman, he writes like many educated Romans who were doing philosophy at the time, he writes in Greek. And uh, I, it always bugged me, I wondered what the word was he used for impregnable citadel. And then I, I never got around to looking it up, and I looked up, and the word he uses, and I don't know why no one ever points this out in any of the books, is Acropolis. Mm-hmm. And there are many uh, Acropoli, but uh, I think he had in mind the Athenian Acropolis, because in another passage he talks about looking down upon all of the busyness of human affairs, marriages and divorces, and people trading things, and the clapping of tongues in law courts, he says, like and seeing that from high above so seeing it with a kind of certain amount of detachment and he talks about looking down on agoras and so one of the things that you see when you look down from the acropolis in athens is the agora mm-hmm. where socrates was tried and executed we believe and uh, it's a metaphor therefore so to me the acropolis is potentially uh, a symbol of one of the main psychological techniques in ancient philosophy which involves looking at things from a kind of elevated perspective mm-hmm. and getting a sense of detachment uh, towards them. Now, we, you, I asked you about what, uh, how you describe Athens through the senses. How about Stoicism itself? Well, we talked about this and I've been thinking about it a lot and I think, I, and I asked people about it and I think Stoicism would be quite an earthy, down-to-earth philosophy. It's not like Plato's philosophy, which is quite mystical and metaphysical. Stoicism is quite grounded. So I guess it would have an earthy taste. And the Stoics, the early Greek Stoics, like their predecessors, the Cynic philosophers, ate lupin seeds and lentil soup. So I think Stoicism would taste like lentils. (laughs) It's got a kind of earthy taste. And I feel like it might smell a bit of sweat, but in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Sweaty lentils. Anything else? <laughs> no, no saving grace. No, nothing fresh. Nothing uh, zingy. What would be? A, I don't know if there's any real pleasant fragrances associated with stoicism historically. Um, how did you? How did you become drawn to stoicism and uh, the smell of? Well, it wasn't by the smell. <laughs> it Sweat. Was because um, I was studying psychotherapy. And Let's I was keep moving along, shall studying we? Studying philosophy. Um, my first degree was in philosophy at Aberdeen, in Scotland. And I was training in psychotherapy and counselling. And so I was looking for a way to connect these two things together. And after four years of studying philosophy at university, um, I wasn't really getting very far. I was looking at existential philosophy and psychoanalysis. There's kind of overlap there, but it didn't really click for me. It seemed overly complicated. And then I, I stumbled across Stoic philosophy and I realised it was the perfect combination of philosophy and psychotherapy and meditation or contemplative practices. So all the different things I was interested in mm-hmm. at the time I found combined in Stoicism. 
And now stoicism, as you mentioned recently, has become quite trendy, hasn't it? I mean, it's something that uh, was practiced as a philosophy for yeah. 400 and I think 500 years, for almost. And yeah. now it's re-emerged in the modern world. Um, first of all, I just, I'm going to interrupt myself so we can describe where we've arrived now. Um, now we've arrived to the Pnyx uh, hill, well, to the main part of the Pnyka hill. Um, where there is this uh, this rock where with steps on it where is that where people used to get up and speak that's where they would speak right there where those steps are as i understand it and they would address the thousands of uh, people that would gather here um, because the one thing that we know about all athenians uh, and this is true in the past and i think today as well alexia is that they like to talk <laughs> i believe that's i don't know still what true. you mean yeah <laughs> So they like to go and have a, a good debate and listen to a good speech and this obviously was a long time, this was before television and the internet and so that was kind of partly how people got their entertainment. What do you think Socrates would think of the internet? Socrates would think that the internet was, I, I can tell you exactly what Socrates would think of the internet. Um, he would think that it's uh, like the gymnasia. Um, of ancient Athens that uh, it's uh, full of um, things, uh, diversions in a way. Um, it's an opportunity to communicate with people, which is something that he would like. Um, it's also like the Agora, where you can mingle with lots of strangers, maybe visitors from uh, all over the world in the Agora. You communicate with the global community on the internet. And is diversion a good thing? Well, Socrates would think the danger is it's full of sophists, right? Socrates had a love-hate relationship with the sophists. They're what the kids today we call frenemies. So, like, I feel like whenever Plato's describing a sophist, Socrates isn't far away. He likes to hang around them, but he also has uh, some beef with them. He thinks that they sound like philosophers, but they're not philosophers. Uh -huh. um, because they tell people whatever they want to hear, whatever gets the Sounds biggest like round the of applause. Sounds like the new age gurus of today. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, literally, the internet works by, you know, people getting the most engagement on their posts, yeah. or the most likes. And sometimes that means that people who say things that are true but boring disappear off the radar, and people who say things that are very sensational and so people today complain a lot about how the media is fear-mongering and stoking hatred, but that's bound to happen uh, in a culture where uh, messages, posts and videos um, that get the strongest reaction from people uh, get the most airtime and are rewarded. And yeah. the sophists were like that, they were attention-seeking. Mm -hmm. They would literally compete for the biggest round of applause. Mm -hmm. And so Socrates thought the danger when you do that is the truth goes out the window and people start saying whatever they think the audience wants to hear. Right. Um, now, I, going on to a different topic, we've been uh, globally in facing this pandemic of uh, COVID-19 and it's caused a huge uh, psychological trauma i would say and uh, social trauma to people that will probably take a long time to to recover from let alone understand um, and i know with your work you you combine as you said uh, sort of the more psychological techniques with stoical philo stoical philosophy so what would you be your sort of advice to people using those techniques in order to deal with the situations that they've been facing 
mentally and emotionally. Well, there are many pieces of advice that the Stoics give because uh, our most famous text from uh, the Stoics is the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which he wrote during the middle of a pandemic called the Antonine Plague, uh, which is far worse than the one that we're facing at the moment. It was a variant of smallpox and uh, it killed approximately 5 million people. Just to let our listeners know, we're clambering down yeah, rocks right now and rocks. we might just slip. I, I see myself slipping. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Go so on. the Stoic philosophy kind of evolved in some ways in uh, facing as a way of coping with similar threats in the ancient world. And lockdown, like, well, in the ancient world they had sieges, people were sent into exile. So they had kind of analogous experiences in a way that they were using philosophy to deal with. Philosophers were prone to getting sent into exile because they often upset uh, go this way? political uh, leaders. Uh, they upset the government in mm. various countries and tended to get exiled. Mm-hmm. And so dealing with exile, I thought, well, that seems very antiquated. We're not exiled today. And then I realised lockdown presents similar <laughs> challenges um, to being an ancient philosopher sent into exile. So what type of advice do they give us? Well, the, the Stoics give us lots and lots and lots of advice. So we'd have to kind of pick selectively to give some examples. But for instance, they tell us, perhaps first and foremost, that we should try and view things more rationally and objectively. And in part, that means watching the language that we use so that we don't use sweeping over generalizations. We don't jump prematurely to conclusions. We don't use highly emotive language that's designed to stoke anger or fear or sadness. Give me an example. Well, I mean, for instance, my favorite example is I had a client once in therapy and he'd given a presentation at work and it didn't go that well. And he was very anxious and very depressed and very upset about it. And I told him to kind of tell me what happened. And he said, well, someone really just tore a strip off me and they shot me down in flames. And I really wish the ground would just open up and swallow me whole. And wow. It was just awful. Okay. That kind of stuff. <laughs> and I explained to him this idea about suspending emotive language and strong value judgments. And I said, could you stick to the bare facts of what happened and <laughs> describe it without any value judgments or any kind of metaphors at all, just in very plain objective language? And he said, I said such and such and someone told me that they disagreed with me oh. <laughs> and that was real I, that sounded very different to me yes <laughs> much less alarming <laughs> yeah but he'd put layer upon layer of uh rhetoric really mm. you know emotive rhetoric on top of it that was bound and you know language has evolved since the time of the ancient poets and orators to be a tool for firing up people's emotions. Yeah, now we have emojis. Yeah, we have, <laughs> we have emojis to do that for us. But the strange thing is we use rhetoric on ourselves without even thinking about it. You know, we use colourful metaphors, we use overgeneralizations, we use hyperbole and exaggeration. And, uh, you know, it's like a, a dangerous psychological weapon in a way if we don't know what we're doing with it. And so people who are anxious and depressed will use anxious and depressive language to describe the situations they're facing. And the Stoics want us to try and get out of that habit and to learn to speak about things in a more matter-of-fact and objective way. Mm-hmm. Stick to uh, the facts and be careful about the use of value judgments in particular. Any other tips you would give? Yeah, the other thing that the Stoics said, which was way ahead of their time, is that um, we, uh, when we're upset about things, we tend to narrow down our focus of attention. So 
attention could be broad or it could be narrow and uh, the Stoics thought we should broaden our scope of attention we should practice doing that every day by one way of doing that would be to imagine viewing things from high above as I mentioned earlier or imagine our place within the totality of space and time for instance and uh, the they were right because we know now that when people are very angry or very anxious they tend to focus on things like they're putting them under a magnifying glass and when you broaden mm. the scope of your attention uh, you can still be aware of the things that are upsetting you because you're also in addition to that aware of a lot of other things that tends to dilute the emotional effect that it has right okay Th those are two very very invaluable <laughs> parts of advice so that's more like seeing the forest instead of the yeah. seeing the tree is it the tree instead of the forest or the forest instead of the tree can't see the forest for the trees is the <laughs> look, okay. looking at the bigger picture i suddenly was mean. confused about yeah. what was <laughs> what was more important <laughs> to focus on the tree or the the broader thing right now we've climbed on uh, this uh, what is this part called? The, the something of Meliti, I think. These rocks that are give us give us a totally different view of uh, Attica. We're now looking out to the sea, and uh, we have like the the whole urban landscape and the the mountains all around Athens. And then you can see the sea in the distance, and you actually can see boats in the sea with their lights twinkling. It's pretty magical and a very beautiful open view. And there's a few, few people perched on rocks here and there. This is also a lovely place to come and have like a, a glass of wine or two with some friends. And what, uh, talking of wine, what uh, did the Stoics say about uh, it overindulgence? Because that's another uh, problem in our society today. I think they believed that we should consume either we should be water drinkers as they said and not drink wine although we should consume it in moderation mm -hmm. so they seem to have different opinions about that but moderation in all things was this fundamental of uh, Greek philosophy in general which really goes all the way back to some kind of pre-philosophy perhaps in the cult of Apollo at Delphi um, where inscribed oh my God, I'm about to, slip. to the temple <laughs> it said made in agan or nothing too much, nothing in excess. Ah, like they say in modern Greek, the Panton Metron Ariston. Yeah, the moderation is uh, best in all things. How's your Greek? Because I know you've been learning Greek, studying yeah. Greek the last few years. It's, uh, it's, it's coming on very slowly. Talinika Mudenina Podikala. But Ala uh, Prospato. Uh, I try, <laughs> and it's uh, it's getting there. So I'm very good at ordering coffee. What does the Greek language Greek. feel like and sound like to you? And oh, it's very different to speak Greek with a Scottish accent. <laughs> and I believe that I may be the only person that uh, that speaks Greek with a Scottish accent. <laughs> but uh, I think Greek it very it was very confusing to me at first because I knew a little bit of ancient Greek. Well, the ancient Greek was pretty rusty. And so I kept trying to pronounce modern Greek in uh, an ancient Greek pronunciation. And so that confused me and everyone else for a while. But uh, yeah, it's of, it seems to me to be quite a musical and poetic language. And 
it's interesting when you use a foreign language I think it makes you think a little bit more about the the words and phrases that you're using in your native language you tend to take idioms for granted My, and uh, when you're learning a new language because everything seems a little stranger you're using it a little bit more thoughtfully um, which is good it makes you mindful self-aware and the Stoics have a word for that they call it prosochi um, which is a word that's still used in Greek today and you see everywhere attention I watch out for uh, I see it most often in signs that say prosochi skelos uh, or <laughs> beware of the, the dog, dog. Yeah, beware of the dog as we would say in English um, but uh, Epictetus the Stoic philosopher has a whole dialogue about uh, uh, this word and uh, uh, how it refers to be paying attention to our own faculty of judgment uh, or the way that we use reason and uh, it's a kind of mindfulness uh, concept of the Stoics. So we've uh, left Pnyx Hill and walked down the obviously much more noisy Dionisio de Pajitu Street. It's a Friday night, as we said it's the full moon as well so a lot of people are out and about and we have to wrap up our chat now. Um, I want you to please tell our listeners how to find you and find out uh, more information about uh, your teachings and your work and your books, of course, and you, you're also producing a graphic novel now. Yeah, so they can find everything on my website, which is just donaldrobertson.name and uh, my latest book is called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, so it's available in 15 languages, including Greek and uh, I'm working on a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism that's going to be out probably summer uh, next year and I'm writing a biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press that'll be out like next year sometime as well and uh, yeah like I've written uh, six books so now you can, they can find them all on my website if they're interested and lots of articles and courses and stuff like that about Stoic philosophy. Thank you so much for this wonderful chat and walk uh, around this gorgeous Pnika Hill in the, in the sunset time. And uh, now you're off to try some Greek uh, tastes. Yeah. <laughs> well, any, any, uh, any idea what you're going to be eating? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have fava, maybe we'll have tzatziki, taramasalata, kalamakia. Kalamarakia. Kalamarakia or kalamaki. Kalamaki is um, a ah, kalamaki with nee, uh, meat stick. Yeah, yeah kotopolo kalamaki uh-huh. or uh, kirono. Um, yeah. Okay, any, 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 the Latin poet Horace, which is pretty short and sweet. Um, he was influenced by Stoic philosophy. He studied Stoic philosophy and he writes about it. He's also influenced by Epicurean philosophy. And, and Horace says, dare to be wise, which I think is short and sweet and good advice. Okay, thank you very much. Have a lovely dinner. Thank you for joining Donald Robertson and me on our sometimes very slippery walk along the lushly scenic and deeply historic Nix Hill. I really hope your senses of Athens have been awakened and enriched. For more information on the things we discussed, see the show notes that accompany this episode of Sense in the City Athens. And please don't forget 
to follow us on Instagram on Sense in the City Athens and on Facebook on our page Sense in the City World. Or check out our website which showcases the various cities like Sydney, Dubai and soon Paris that are presenting podcasts at senseinthe.city. Hi, I'm David Fuller, Executive Producer of Sense in the City. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to show your support for the team, please follow the links in your podcast app or our website. You can subscribe to bonus content via Patreon, or you can leave a small amount at buymeacoffee.com forward slash sense.